Welcome to the Reconcile Community Church podcast. We hope and pray that the resources that will be shared on here would be a blessing to you. If you want more information or to support our church financially as we do the work in the beautiful Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, you can find more information about that at www.reconcilecincy.org. Be blessed. We are back in our sermon series. Uh, we're back in our sermon series uh, entitled Empowered Living. Today, we're talking about empowered formation. And I know a lot of you are probably looking at the screen like, what in the world uh, is, what? what's the reason why we got a picture of Steph Curry shooting a three-pointer? With uh, And this is an old picture too, by the way. Um, but we find ourselves in Psalm 63. And so for many of you who have been uh, walking with us, we are using the lectionary uh, to help organize our sermon series uh, this particular season. Uh, So on the tail end, on the back end of the Holy Spirit coming down on Pentecost, what are the implications of the Holy Spirit on our lives? How are we empowered to live for him? And so we talked about proclamation and boldness, and um, we talked about, you know, this idea of preparation and all of these different implications that come about uh, us being empowered by the Holy Spirit. But today we're going to talk about Um, the idea of formation and why it's important and how through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been empowered to be formed deeply into the image and likeness of the Lord. And so in your hearing, I want to read to you uh, Psalm uh, Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is a very interesting uh, passage of scripture. And as I sent in our group chat for the members of Reconciled Community Church, I told you to read um, some passages ahead of time to give you kind of a Cliff Notes version, or really to give you the story of what takes place. When we read the Um, the wisdom literature, especially the book of Psalms, we have to, just like we read the New Testament epistles, we have to understand when they were written and why they were written. So all of these Psalms were written at specific times in history. So certain things were happening. And if we know what is happening, it better, it helps us better understand kind of the impetus why it was written in the first place. Makes sense. Just like the New, uh, New Testament epistles or the letters that we have from Paul or from Peter or John, they were all written uh, during a time, a time span that we find in the book of Acts. And so while Paul was on missionary journeys, he was writing letters. And we see those letters in our New Testament. It's just an opportunity for us to understand what indeed is happening. And so with 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 19 as a backdrop, I want you to listen to Psalm 60 in your hearing. It says this, and you should be able to see it. I'm going to move out of the way for y'all so y'all can see it. Uh, Psalm 63 uh, says this in your hearing. It says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength in your glory, my lips will fill you with my, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live at your name. I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie down on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. 
but those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. This is the word of God. Amen. Can somebody go out there and just check and see if anybody's at the door um, and let me let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have on this morning to jump back into your word. Lord, we are thankful that you have given us an opportunity to hear clearly from you. Lord, I pray now that you would remove any distractions or hindrances that may come about that will try to distract or derail us from what it is that you would have for us to know, say, and do. Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity that we have on today to be reminded of just how good and how awesome and mighty you are. And Lord, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that we would be able to uh, not only just hear the word of God, but that we would allow it to uh, penetrate our hearts. And as it penetrates our hearts, that we would be open to allowing the good news uh, of of the gospel to be able to penetrate our hearts and lives in such a way that we would be changed and transformed. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us. But before us, we pray in your son's name. Amen. And amen. I love this picture. I love it. I love this picture for multiple reasons. For many of you who may not necessarily be basketball uh, aficionados, uh, the one guy, number 30, is Steph Curry. Um, I just got to do this because I don't know who's watching or who's, you know, here. Uh, but, but Steph Curry plays for the Golden State Warriors. And I think he is arguably the best shooter in the NBA history. Like, this guy is amazing. He's broken all the three-point records. Like, he's just incredible team that you see in front of him that is guarding him, that is the opposition of sorts, is the New Orleans Pelicans. Now, there's a familiar person that is there who's very tall, who's literally the one who's trying to block the shot. His name is Anthony Davis. I'm giving y'all this so that you know the context of what's happening. Anthony Davis no longer plays for the New Orleans Pelicans. He plays for the Los Angeles Lakers with LeBron James. Now, neither here nor there. Here's the story behind this shot. April of 2015, the Warriors were down by 20 points. And it was looking like the New Orleans Pelicans were going to go on and they were going to cause some 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 drama in the playoffs. Uh, Golden State was favored to win this deal. But for some reason, they the Pelicans had their number and they were down by 20 going into the fourth quarter. And if you know anything about Steph Curry, you know, once he hits one, it's almost like the the basketball rim gets bigger for him and he can just shoot from wherever and the ball's going to go in. And so they begin to go on a run. And it's at this moment where they are about to tie the game where you see Steph Curry do something that has been cemented in history as one of the most improbable things ever. He's in the corner. He gets the pass. He gills up for a shot. Anthony Davis, who's about seven foot three, seven foot four, don't know his wingspan, but just know it's really long. He jumps up to block the shot. There are two other uh, opponents that are right underneath him to try to, to derail him as well. And as Steph Curry goes for the shot, of course it goes in. But the thing that's incredible about this shot that we see solidify here is that Steph Curry's eyes are closed. At the biggest point in the game, when most of it was like hanging on what was to happen, when the opposition was at its worst and at its highest, when the lights were turned up at its brightest, Steph Curry shoots a three-pointer with his eyes closed in one of the most difficult shots that you have in basketball, the corner three. Now, for many of us 
we would ask several questions. Why in the world would Steph do something like this? This makes no sense. In the midst of something like this, I got my eyes open. I'm probably not going to take the shot because Anthony Davis is so much taller than me. I'm thinking about all of the opposition around me. But for some reason, instinctually, Steph closed his eyes, shot a three. And what we know is the rest would be history. But why would Steph do something like this? Why would he close his eyes and, and be able to trust that he would make it? Well, the reason why he can trust that he could make it is because of his training and his instincts. One of the things that we know about Steph is that he practices for moments like this. He spends multiple hours in the gym forming his shot. He, he knows the muscle memory. He knows what it takes. He's done it so many times in private that when the lights turn up at its brightest, what you see come out is what is indicative of what has happened in the private moments. He can rely on his formation in the moments that are toughest for him because of the time that he spent in private. He's formed this over and over and over again so that when opposition comes, when, when the lights turn on the brightest, when most of us would buckle, he can rely on his formation. That's why he can shoot with his eyes closed in the midst of opposition, because at the end of the day, his formation is right. Psalm 63, when we read it in its hearing, is essentially David's eyes closed three in the corner. It's this moment where we see in 2 Samuel, he is on the run from his own son. It's a, it's a wild story. David has done uh, some incredibly atrocious things in his life. And now the rent is due, as they would say. Like things are coming back and he's having to reap what he sowed. And one of the things that comes up is that his son, Absalom, has this hatred for his dad. So much so that he will do whatever it is necessary to kill his own father. And so yet and still, we find David on the run again. This is not nothing out of the ordinary for David. He's been on the run multiple times. He's found himself in the face of opposition a lot. But it seems as if every time David finds himself in opposition, he pins a psalm. And as he pins a psalm, what we see is what oozes out of him in the midst of turmoil and hardship. It's not that he's necessarily broken and falling apart, but what comes out of him is this idea, this result of him spending so much time being formed with God. Like this relationship with him is so strong that in the midst of trials and tribulations, what comes out of him in those moments is a product of his time with the Lord. He can face opposition and still rejoice. He can face opposition and not be hopeless because of the time he spent in private with the Lord. He's been formed. He's been shaped. He's been molded. And what we see is that he's showing this otherworldly focus on the Lord in the midst of a bottom falling out. He had formation practices that rooted him. Now, to be sure, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is spiritual formation? I'm glad y'all asked. Spiritual formation and why it's important, this simply can be uh, deduced down to this. It's the process of maturing in our walks with the Lord through the regular use of sacred practices. 
It's this idea that we are maturing in our walks with the Lord through the regular use of these sacred practices. This time where we are literally in the gym, so to speak, putting up shots with the Lord, developing our relationship with him. And the more that we pull from this, the more that we continue to impart these regular routines and practices in our lives, we build up this muscle memory so that when we do face trials, we're not shocked by what comes out. Because the reality is a lot of times when we fall, find ourselves in the midst of trials, we're a little nervous about what comes out. We're like, why in the world am I running to toxic doubt and shame? Why is it that I am not uh, doing the things that the Lord would have for me to do? It could be because our formation may be a little bit off, that we spend more time focusing on other things than what matters most. And so what David is going to show us is the result of what spiritual formation produces in the life of a believer when trials come about. If you were to give me a big idea for this text, here's what we see. That believers are equipped with the necessary tools through the Spirit to cultivate a rich relationship with the Lord that stands up in the midst of the ups and downs of life. This is essentially what Psalm 23 shows us. As the backdrop of 2 Samuel tells us the story, David is on the run. His son is literally going to get him. And if you read the entire story, what you know is that doesn't come to pass. His son ends up, the process, um, the, the, the story of what his son was going to do to try to kill him is derailed. The moment where he was starving, he was fed. And ultimately what we see is that David survives one of the hardest moments of his life. We see through Psalm 63, his response in the midst of this trial. So what does it show us as results of a life that is formed in God, a life that has been rooted in the formation of God. The first thing that Psalm 63 shows us, it shows us a heart that is dependent on the Lord. We see this in verses 1, 2, and 9. If you were to go back into this, you see words that, um, that, that, that David gives. And so if you were to look at the NIV or if you were to look at any of these different translations, you'll see words that are similar to these that I'm about to share with you. David makes mention that his soul thirsts. In verse 2, he's seeking after the Lord. In verse number 9, he's clinging to the Lord. All of these are calling cards for David. They're in reference to his disposition of being in the Lord's presence. For some reason, that was the only audience that he really cared about that he wanted to be in the presence of God. It's this thing that we see all throughout the Psalms that he pins. It's this idea that he, he cannot outrun God's presence, but he wants to be in God's presence when he finds himself in the bottoms falling out in multiple different Psalms. He's always like, but I need to be in his presence. I need to be in your presence. It's always written over and over and over again that some reason, for some reason, David longs to be in the presence of God. And it shows us this notion of total dependence on him. Brothers and sisters, in a society that's hell-bent on us being dependent on no one, this is refreshing to hear. Could it be that one of the Christian's apologetics is that we are utterly dependent upon the Lord? That we, as an apologetic to the world, is that man, we cannot do this on our own, that we are utterly dependent upon the one who hung the stars and the moons in the sky. 
But we cannot navigate this life with boldness and uh, the ability to live the fruitful life apart from Christ. Like we are utterly declaring as Christians that, man, look, I can't do this on my own. I need the Lord. Jesus made clear of this in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. You've heard this passage. We preached on it before. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, listen to it now, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because here now you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. David was ruthless in this concept of being in the presence of God. We see this over and over. He's now calling back to this reality in this particular psalm. And what he's getting at, and what I think we need to hear from this, is that David was intentional with his time. He made sure that he gave God the best parts of himself. That's essentially what it means when he's, he's drawn to this idea of being in the presence of God. This is why I think God would say that David was a man after God's own heart. Because when you think about it, David was jacked up. He made a lot of mistakes in the midst of his walk. But for some reason, he fought and clawed for time to be with the Lord. No matter how broken he was, his goal was to be sought, was to seek after the Father. Now, here's the good news for us. That because you've put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit we took, uh, the, the, the power of the Spirit uh, gives us the ability to have our yearnings change, to want to be in the presence of the Lord. That's why there's sometimes you're like, man, you may be going through something, but you're like, I just need to go be with the Lord. I, I need to pray. I need to read my Bible. There's this yearning on the inside of you. That's the Holy Spirit working on the inside of you to say that man wants you to be drawn more and more and more to himself. This is the good news that we have. So for many of us, we've all been in love before. All of us. All of us have been in love. Some of us are still in love, which is good. Some of us are searching for love. But you know, you've been in love before, even you online. And there's something about this idea when you are madly in love with someone that you just want to be in a presence. So, for example, Kristen and I celebrate nine years uh, this year um, in July. And um, I can remember uh, when we first started dating, I did whatever I could to get in her presence. I still do the same kind of stuff, but back then it was funny. Uh, so I was in seminary during that time. And uh, don't tell my seminary professors, but sometimes I would skip chapel and I would like come pick her up and be like, hey, let's go to lunch because I just wanted to be in her presence. Uh, because I was a pastor, like one of the things that I wanted to do was always be above board. And so I spent an exorbitant amount of money Christian can tell you this, because uh, I always took her out to eat. That was the easiest way for me to get to know her and to be in her presence. So we ate at probably every restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know how this was happening because I was broke. 
but God was providing. I just wanted to be in her presence. Uh, there would be moments in time where I would just eavesdrop into her, her job and I would sit there like didn't do anything, just wanted to be there with her. And even now with our kids, sometimes I just sit because I just want to be in her presence. It's the goal. Like it was nothing else other than that. I just wanted to be with her. We love to manage our lives, but do we actively choose to give the Lord the best parts of us to intentionally be with him? Just like how I'm madly in love with my wife, God invites us to be madly in love with him. One of the things that I've heard be said is that he can be found in the quiet places, but my question for us is, do we choose to meet him there? David did. One of the outworkings of a life that's deeply formed in Christ is this notion that you want to be in his presence. But secondly, what we see is a mind rooted in things of God. Verses three and seven says this. It says, he looked up upon you and behold, he, he beheld his power and his glory. He remembered him. He meditated on the things of God. All of these are descriptors of ways in which David focused on the things of God. Remember. I want you to remember this. He is in the midst of terrible tribulation. He is on the run. Like someone is literally trying to kill him. And when you read the psalm, he's like, man, I just, I'm just so thankful for you. And I'm like remembering all of the good things that you've done. I'm meditating on your word when I go to sleep. Like we missed that part. Like even in the midst of turmoil, this man sleeping, thinking about the Lord. Like he is just focused on God. He's focused on him. And, and it's crazy to think about this because it reshaped David and he was acquainted with God and what he could do. And if you look at this psalm and think about the backdrop of 2 Samuel, what you notice is that this psalm shows us that he made his problems take a back seat because he knew who, who he was with. It's reminding us of this idea that he was focused on the things of God. Now, many of us can't shout for this, even online. I know this because many of us panic in trials. And what comes out of us is toxic shame and guilt. We start thinking about, you know, uh, doubting God in his presence. We get anxiety. We, we, we think we need to correct it ourselves apart from God. But it could be because we don't know the one who we're with. We can't walk in confidence with the Lord if we don't trust him and who he is, and what he said about himself. We have to make sure that we get acquainted with who he is. And the only way that we can do that is to get acquainted with him through his word. It's important for us to understand this. David was able to move boldly because he knew God. Don't miss this. He knew who was with him. But can we? Can we? His life was riddled with this notion of setting his mind on things of God. The stats are scary. But essentially what it said, and I've shared it multiple times, that we live in a biblically illiterate generation, meaning that people just don't know the book. And because people don't know the book, they end up falling astray to random things. Sometimes it could be elementary of sorts. At the end of the day, what it shows us is that there is a reality that for many of us, we say that we love the Lord. But when the bottom falls out, what it shows us is that we don't really know the Lord. 
because we hadn't spent time with him to get to know him. Not to just know things about him, but to know him, to know Scott, to know him deeply. And the only way we get to know him deeply is to sit with his word. Psalm chapter one tells us this reality. Gives us a picture of a man who had a fruitful life, and it wasn't because of anything else but his proximity to the word of God. Psalm chapter one, verse one through three says this. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in a pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. The idea of meditation is this idea of a cow. You've heard me say this chewing grass or what they call cud. Um, cows have four stomachs. And so one of the things that's gross, I know, but I got to share this with you. What they'll do is they'll chew the food. It'll go down into one stomach to be digested. Then the cow spits it back up, chews it again. It goes down into the second and then it comes back up. It is chewing and chewing and chewing. And as it keeps being digested in all of these chambers, more and more of the nutrients are being pulled out of it so that by the time it is, you know, exited the body of this cow, it is nothing left. It's this idea of meditating, that he's sitting on the word of God and he's just allowing it to mull over and over and over and over. That's why the indication is here on it day and night. Verse three says, and he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. It's this idea that he, he's, he's rooted in the things of God. But I love Joshua, Joshua chapter one, verse six through nine. It's this idea that God is calling Joshua to remind him as he's about to take steps to feel to fill the shoes of Moses, this hero of the faith. He reminds him of this specific promise. He says, be strong and courageous for you will distribute the land. I swear to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. I love what he says here again. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you may go. Acts chapter 17 verse 11 tells us of a church in Berea. And this church in Berea is known to be, you know, the, the some of these churches that were started. And it wasn't because of what they had. It wasn't because of anything else but the fact that they loved the word and they were in it. I love what Acts chapter 17 verse 11 says. The people here were more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And here it is, brothers and sisters, that the spirit of God gives us a hunger for the truth. This is what John, this is what Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, that the spirit will give us this ability to want to yearn for the truth that is found in the scriptures to know more and more about the Lord. This is why we see in Colossians chapter three, where Paul would say, set your mind on things above, not on things below. He's getting at this idea that we root ourselves on God and who he is and let that shape how we navigate here in life. The spirit gives us this so that we can be informed to move in course. David moved differently because he knew the words of God and he acted on them. 
For example, there were multiple moments when David could have killed Saul in the passage of scripture, multiple times, where like Saul was literally right there for David to kill. But because David was acquainted with who God was, and he had this formation, this relationship with the Lord, he would not kill him. He would allow the Lord to handle Saul, just like he allowed the Lord to handle his son. David knew God. He knew how to navigate, even when it didn't make sense. Now, one of the things that you need to know is I love movies, but there are some movies that I don't I'm I'm starting to learn like my feel my like my 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 appreciation for them. And so whenever I have to do a Harry Potter reference, I got to consult the resident Harry Potter expert, which is my wife. She is the ultimate Harry Potter aficionado. She got all of the books, she got the side books, she got the quest books, the spell books, she got Quidditch books, she got magazines, she got wands, she got she is all things Harry Potter. So I had to run this by her just to make sure that I wasn't wrong because I would hear about it in the car like, you know, you messed up. Like I messed up one time using another one. I was like, I ain't never going to do that again. But one of the things that's interesting about Harry Potter is this notion that Harry always trusts Dumbledore. Like without a doubt, if you don't know the story of Harry Potter, what you need to know is that um, that that Harry is kind of the Jesus-like figure in the story, and Dumbledore is the father, God the Father kind of representation in the story. And so, what you see all throughout this uh, story is how Harry is trying to defeat the enemy, and, uh, and and Dumbledore is kind of you know guiding him along the way to try to figure this stuff out. He knows what he's doing, and there's this beautiful um, relationship that's formed where. Harry trusts Dumbledore because he knows that Dumbledore like loves him, like is trying to do the best for him. So whenever he gives him some advice or he gives him some directives, it don't sometimes make sense. Even when I'm watching, I'm like, why would you do that? But Harry blindly trusts Dumbledore because he's he, he knows Dumbledore cares for him. He knows he can trust him in the midst of this. And when everyone else is telling him to go right or to left, he focuses in on what Dumbledore says because he knows that he can trust it. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense because he's been acquainted with him. Am I good? Praise the Lord. See, I got it right. But it's the same reality for us as well. That when we have spent time developing this relationship, to hear the voice of the Lord. When we have spent time being formed in our relationship with the Father, what should come out in the midst of turmoil and trials is this uncanny ability to focus in on who God is to say, you know what, no matter what is happening in this world, I am reminded that you are good. I'm reminded that I can trust you. I'm reminded that you are a good father. This is the reality that we see from David. What else we see from David is this disposition that is confident in the ways of God. Hang in there with me. I'm almost done. Verses 8, 9, and then really 8 through the rest of the chapter uh, of the psalm here, we see uh, David use words like, you are my helper. Your right hand upholds me. There's protection from his enemies. What he's getting at is God is a good father. And he knows how to provide and he knows how to protect. And David has this uncanny ability to be confident even when the bottom falls out. Every time that David found himself in a situation, what we always see is the hand of God as well. God always seemed to provide for him along the way. And what we see is that there's always this confidence in David to take these crazy steps of faith because he knows who's with him. 
So stories like David and Goliath, where you got this ruddy David who comes onto the scene and there's a uh, a massive individual. We don't want to argue about how tall he was. All we know is that he was big, really, really big, and he scared everybody. But what we know is that he did not scare David. And the reason why he did not scare him was because David understood that the Lord was with him. He was able to face this trial. And what do we see? That there's victory that is taking place. David slung a stone, but I love how the old black church say, but it was the spirit of God who made that thing speed up to hit him. Like this, this good idea that God was with him. When you see David on the run, all of these times where he's playing the harp for Saul on Monday, and then next thing you know, Saul on Thursday is throwing a, a, a spear at him and it doesn't catch him. There's these moments where he's constantly on the run and God is providing. There's these moments where David is running out of food and he's like, man, I don't know what I'm about to do. But then the Lord provides an opportunity for him to eat the bread that's in the tabernacle. There's all these constant reminders of how God has been present in David's life. And David, for some reason, every time this happens, he pins a psalm. And every time he pins a psalm, it's almost like he's reminding himself of the God who's with him so that as he continues to take these steps of faith, he can walk more boldly. He understands that if God could do it then, he'll do it now. And there's this confidence that he has that no matter what takes place, God is with him. And you and I can have the same level of confidence. You see, because the spirit of God is on the inside of us. And I love that Jesus gives us this declaration and understanding of the power and the work of the spirit in our lives to be reminding us of just how powerful and strong he is. But not only that, we see the hand of God in our lives every single day if we are careful to look for it. And it should remind us every single day that God is good. And if God is there with us in the midst of these moments, we can walk boldly in this life because we know that we're not doing it alone. So we went on vacation and y'all know I was going to come back at some point to this vacation because all last week I was telling y'all about Deer Creek State Park. It is awesome. Telling you, go to state parks. We got passport books and everything. Our kids got to stamp it and everything. It's amazing. I'm telling y'all, it's crazy. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about, um, you know, our vacation is daughter Braylon. Y'all all have experienced Braylon. She's the sassy one of the bunch. Uh, but there's something that I noticed over vacation that like I always knew it was there. But I just had time uninterrupted to just see it in action. Whenever you're with Braylon, she's always bold, but she's even more bolder when her dad is around. So we went swimming at the beach, um, and they have this like man-made beach, just so awesome. I'm telling y'all, you need to go. And so we're we're out in, uh, in at the beach, and I notice that Braylon is like running out into the deep end. She got her little floaty on, but like she's out there. She's not scared or nothing. I'm like, Braylon, what are you doing? And she's like, Daddy, I can swim. I'm like, but usually she will stay in the shallow end. But she said, Daddy, you buy me. I can swim. And I'm like, hmm, let's see. And so what I ended up doing was holding her by the part of her vest, and she starts to kick. She starts to use her arms in this flailing motion. But I noticed that she's she's getting confident. And so now she's like, take me deeper. And I'm like, what? And she looks up at me and says, Daddy, I told you I can swim. She's confident because her dad is with her. She feels like she can handle anything because she knows her dad is with her. She's confident because she's like, I can keep moving. I can move. I can do this because she knows that her dad is with her. That's the news that we have here. 
that we should all have nothing but God moments in our lives that feel our spiritual Rolodex, that we can whip out to encourage us to move more boldly in our day-to-day lives, that we would understand that we serve a God who is with us, who empowers us, who strengthens us, so that when we find ourselves in these turmoil, we can walk boldly and say, because you are with me. That's why we read Psalm 124 when he says, if the Lord had not been on my side, the Israelites said the enemies would entrap me, but because God was with me and with us, we were good. The last thing that we see from this particular uh, psalm here uh, is that David shows us and it oozes out of him in Psalm 23, a life that's satisfied in the Lord. In the midst of the bottom falling out, David has this uncanny ability to remind himself, even in the midst of all of this, God, you are still better than anything else. That's good news. In verses four through six, he says this. He reminds us of this reality that we serve the one who truly satisfies us. Now we tend to forget this if we're honest and we run to idols. Y'all heard me say this. Idols are uh, unauthorized nouns. They're things that we run to, person, places, or things that we run to for value, satisfaction, and worth. We run to these things in the midst of, of trouble. The knee-jerk reaction is to run to these in the midst of trials to appease our need for saving. When David reminds us that God is the one who truly satisfies. None of us are exempt from this, by the way. From the pastor to the pew, we all run to, as the scriptures would call, broken cisterns that leave us thirsty. It's true. It is a reality that this is what happens. If left to ourselves and our own devices, we will put something in God's place to run to, especially in the midst of trials, to appease us. It's interesting that we say this because Solomon noted this in Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. He says, he made everything appropriate in his time. And here, he has put, also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. It's this idea that there is this hole that's on the inside of us that we're constantly trying to fill over and over and over again. And the only person who can satisfy that is the Lord. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. I, I want to give you multiple uh, quotes from individuals that you may know or you may not know who talk about this reality that our hearts are prone to try to grab things that are not of God. It was Michael Hoodman who said, idolatry extends beyond the worship of idols and images and false gods. Our modern idols are many and varied. Even for those who do not bow physically before a statue, idolatry is a matter of the heart. Pride, self-centeredness, greed, gluttony, and a love for possessions, and ultimately rebellion against God. Is it any wonder that God hates it? John Calvin said, Many, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Zaria Butterfield, in her, in her work, uh, The Gospel has a house, Comes with a House Key, she writes this. One very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me. Plain and simple, my heart is an idol factory and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Charles Hunt Spurgeon wrote this, We pity the poor heathen who adore a god of stone and yet worship a god of gold. Where is the vast superiority between a god of flesh and one of wood? The principle, the sin, the folly is the same in either case. 
Only in ours, the crime is more aggravated because we have more light and our sin in face of it and sin in face of it. The heathen bows to a false deity, but the true God, he has never known. We commit two evils inasmuch as we forsake the living God and turn unto idols. May the Lord purge us from this grievous iniquity. Here's the good news. That the spirit of God, one of his jobs is to remind us of the reality that we serve a God who is better than life. This is the reason why Paul would pick up the pen in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 26 and say this, for me to live in is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but for to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of you of, of my coming, you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. We run to the one who gives living water so that we never thirst. Come here, Jesus, at the well. John 4, verse 13 through 14, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give you will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life satisfied in God. Man, there are many people that I've been able to meet in my life that um, have been honestly some of the, in my mind, Mount Rushmore of the faith. These individuals just love the Lord. And I was blessed to be able to meet uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert, Dr. Robert Coleman. Many people don't probably know who Dr. Robert Coleman is, but some people probably have heard of his book called The Master Plan of Evangelism is one of the most widely popular books uh, in the Christian genre. In fact, I would say it's probably up there. It's not close as the Bible, but it is really close as it relates to the number of copies being sold. This man wrote one of the most, I mean, it is an awesome book on discipleship. But Robert Coleman is one of these guys that, man, I feel like has one foot in heaven and one foot here on earth. I mean, he was just a different cat. He was so satisfied with God. And the call that God had on his life. And I remember we were asking him because we got an opportunity to ask this man questions. And he was sitting there. He was older. And uh, he, I mean, just even as he said, he just like, man, this dude walk with the Lord. You could just tell. And we were asking, man, you, you, you wrote this book. You were world-renowned, working at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Like, man, why? Like, why didn't you like fold into the pressure of being like, you know, a celebrity? And he looked at us so perplexed. He was like, I just love the fact that God has allowed me to be a part of kingdom work. And he told us this story about how he was like, man, I, I wrote that book not thinking of being famous. Man, I, my wife and I have been living in a dorm room right next to the laundry room. And we chose to do that because we felt like the Lord called us to do it. And we would take proceeds of the, uh, the money that we got from the book and get a bunch of quarters. And as the students would come downstairs, uncanny, they would usually not have orders. And he said, I just found it as a ministry for me. The Lord has given me an opportunity and my lot in life to be able to serve these youth this way. He says, I didn't need all of the riches. 
He's like, I didn't need the big house or anything. My wife and I were totally content with our little um, our little room there right in uh, in in the facility because we knew that God had given us an awesome opportunity to be able to disciple the next generation. He was satisfied in the Lord. Can we honestly say that of ourselves? That we are truly satisfied in the Lord and what he's called us to do and where he's called us to be. In all of these realities as we close, this idea, these are the results of spiritual formation. This is what it cultivates. The end products that when the bottom falls out, oozes out of our lives. But what practices provide these spaces for us to, for this to take place? I close with this because for many of you, you have been with us for a while. And for those of you who do not know uh, about some of the things that I'm sharing with you online, most uh, importantly, uh, all of this can be found in greater detail on our website. But I want to give you some formation practices that are sacred that help us to cultivate a life that can be seen that David had. That as it oozes out of us, can we see today. The first is silence and solitude. It's an idea for us to get away with the Lord. Lectio Divina, which is an opportunity for us as sacred reading to be able to hear from the Lord, to be able to get acquainted with the word of God. The prayer of examine is an opportunity for us every single day to be able to recount the hand of God on our lives so that we would be able to walk more boldly because it forces us to track his hand throughout our day-to-day lives. And then lastly, the sacred practice of fasting gives us an opportunity to deny ourselves of all of the joy so that we can be reminded of our total dependence on him. If we were to cultivate these and use these sacred practices, I truly believe that the Lord meets us in these practices. And we too would have a Psalm 63 type of mentality that will come out of us even when the bottom falls out. And even when we're on the mountaintop, that our formation has been empowered because of the work of the Spirit. And so that is my end that I hope and pray that we would be able to get to. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives to form us into a, a way, in such a way that we would be able to hear from you, that we would live for you, that we would be able to uh, uh, res- uh, to have results that come out of us that are not forced, but that are natural because of our time with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just continue to be with us. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place and for our sins that make all of this possible for us to be formed into the image and likeness of him. And so, Lord, we thank you. In your son's name we pray and give thanks. Amen and amen.